Well, good evening. It's great to be here. And I guess I should give a title to the talk for the recording. The Power of Mindfulness is what I'm going to call it. And uh, it's interesting because recently I wrote a book called The Mindful Athlete, Secrets to Pure Performance. And uh, I had been, it had been requested of me by numerous teachers. I don't remember if Narayan got on me so much about it, but for the last 20 years, yes, the last 20 years they've been, uh, I won't say bugging me, but they've been encouraging me to write a book. And what happened last year, 2014, I was involved in a, in the uh, 60 Minutes film, this uh, mindfulness retreat that John and Will Cabot then were teaching at Mount Madonna, and that was May of 19, uh, 2014. And it was during that time that I realized there were a bunch of people there, and they were all had ideas about what mindfulness was, and we had a panel, and there were seven of us, and uh, Anderson Cooper asked us, um, well, what stops employers from exploiting employees using mindfulness? And everybody on the panel didn't know what to say. I, I had an idea. I knew what to say, but didn't want to look, make us look like we were disjointed. Plus, there's no way you can answer that in two, three minutes they're going to give you. So I just let it go. And then I thought about it. And I said, hmm, I, I guess I really have to write this book. And as things would have it, I have a friend that works for Parallel Express. And she had been bugging me for the last three years. Another one bugging me to write a book on mindfulness and athletics. And as it turned out, when I left that retreat and I went to San Francisco and was, was flying out to San Francisco the, the next day, uh, I met her and her publisher and we had lunch. And at lunch, they offered me a book contract. No proposal, not, nothing. And they actually gave me advance, which they never do. And they were very interested in me writing this book and having another voice out there about what mindfulness is. And so uh, then the book sort of wrote itself. Uh, I give a lot of talks. And so part of the process was trans translating my, um, my talks. And we ended up with like 600 pages of transcribed notes. Uh, so to say I talk a lot is it's an understatement. But anyway, so the first thing she said to me, uh, Rachel Newman is the publisher, she said, you're the most famous mindfulness teacher I never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's a lot of truth in that because I don't self-promote. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I got interviewed by this radio show in Boston. And first thing he said was, you know, you're, you know, you're this great mindfulness teacher, but you're really lousy at self-promotion, you know. And I said, well, that's your opinion. But the reality was that there was some truth to that because I don't think you can sell this this stuff. Or I've always been of the opinion that uh, it was a little dicey in terms of uh, me offering uh, my services or my view of of um, insight meditation, specifically mindfulness meditation. So I've been doing my thing, I feel like, for the last 30 years in the closet. In um, those days, you couldn't even really talk about spirituality and, and such. So being the most famous uh, unknown meditation teacher or mindfulness uh, teacher, um, it's probably appropriate that I say a little bit about how I came to mindfulness. And I'm going to be talking about mindfulness, but I think it's important that you, at least some of you know, you know, where I came from, what lineage I came out of. And so back in 1984, I was just getting sober from being addicted to drugs and alcohol. And what happened was when I, first of all, I played basketball in high school and I was an elite athlete, but I got injured in college. And then I found uh, uh, prescribed drugs, and then I abused those and got into alcohol and drugs. And so for a period of time, I was lost. And so that was, I graduated in 1973. So 1984, I got clean, and then I realized 
that I was self-medicating because I had a lot of chronic pain, migraine headaches, chronic back pain, a lot of injuries from playing sports because I was injury prone. So I got introduced to uh, this stress management program that Joan Borisinko was running. And so in that program, she gave us a syllabus of a book and taught us meditation and yoga. And then she talked about this place where I could go and do a three-day or a silent retreat. And of course, the place that she had on the list, I read every book on that list. I'm a recovering perfectionist as well. Uh, I read every book on that list, and there was this place called IMS, Insight Meditation Society. So I came up here. So I was totally clueless what I was getting into. So uh, they said, bring a cushion. So I went to this place called Bradley's. It's like, um, I don't know what it is. And I bought a cushion for a couch. <laughs> so I was smart enough to know not to take it out of the trunk when I saw what everybody else had. <laughs> but it gives you some idea of my, my determination to come here. And in, in, in my community, uh, we have a word. I was one of the onlyest people of color here. There were two other. There was a young uh, African-American woman. And then there was this... Um, this Muslim brother from Harlem, and it was interesting. He pulled me aside and he gave me the book on the, the Thai forest Buddhist masters, and he was t giving me the ropes and stuff. So anyway, I came here, and then I discovered CIMC. And then when I went to CIMC, I, I started going there, and obviously that's where my connection with Narayan and Larry come, comes from. And so I, I sat there. Uh, we had, you know, in the middle of the city, city. So I felt really blessed being able to practice every day. And we had daily sittings and weekend retreats and, and the like. And then it just kept going. And then uh, we'd have, in those days, we had weekly interviews with the teachers and they would say things like, oh, you're ready for a, a longer retreat. Because I used to come up here and do weekend retreats for probably three, four years because I worked as a financial analyst. So I didn't have a lot of time. So fast forwarding, uh, I got to a point uh, in my in my trans transition where um, I went in to, to meet with Larry one, I think it was Monday afternoon or whatever, and I go in and, I'm, and he says, uh, what's up with you? You look pretty happy. I said, I took a mental health day off from work. He said, you should make a habit of that. And so as a result of that, I left um, my job. And for two years, I just, you know, did a lot of sitting and I lived at the meditation center for six years. And Part of my training was to observe Narayan teach the beginner's drop-in for about six years. So I did a lot of, and did a lot of retreats, and living at the meditation center, uh, I'm a voracious reader, so I've averaged over a book a week over the last 31 years. And I've read all the books in the library, you know, all the suttas, and all the teachers that came, I would study with them, and then I started doing stuff with John Kabat-Zinn at the Center for Mindfulness. So I've been doing this for quite a while, uh, you know, in the, you know, really not so much in these settings, but in settings uh, like when I was at the center, when I was at CIMC, we used to get requests for people to come and teach meditation. That was my job. So I'd go out. And so when people say, well, who do you work with? I say, people from Yale or jail, from locker rooms to the boardrooms. If you got a mind, I could probably work with you. So that's where my experience came from. So my experience around mindfulness and this practice is predicated on a deep commitment to this practice and having teachers like Narayan, Larry, Joseph, Sharon. And the other thing I did is I've been coming here for 30 years. I was on the board of directors for six years. And this is my first time ever teaching in this hall. Even though I've been teaching for 30 years, this is my first time teaching here. Although um, I was here two years ago, 2013, because Narayan asked me to teach, because a yoga teacher couldn't make it, so I taught Qigong. So that was my first entree back here, because I really haven't been back to IMS since I was on the board, because a lot of my sitting happens at the Forest Refuge, and I was doing things at the, the study, you know, the Buddhist Study Center. So uh, fast forwarding, so being here, and I just wanted to share that's where my lineage comes from, a lot of it from the Thai forest tradition, Ajahn Chah, and the teachers out of that lineage. And, of course, working with Larry, there's a little bit of Zen 
in that in John Kabat-Zinn, but also Jack. I mean, I couldn't have picked better teachers. And and I don't know if they picked me or not, but I ended up having them, and them, they've been supporting me all these all these years. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about my take on what mindfulness is or how I've been teaching it. And one of the things that I've had to do is translate it. So I've always taught it from the essence of the Buddhist teachings. And so uh, bear with me a little bit. I'll just kind of go through this as quickly as possible. So obviously, um, when you talk about wisdom, right view and right intentions or right thoughts, and the right view you talk about, or we talk about um, the law of karma, and we talk about the Four Noble Truths, which Narayan talked about the other day. The truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, which we know is clinging and attachment and ignorance, and the end of suffering and then the path, which is the Eightfold Noble Path. And so when, we, when I look at the Eightfold Noble Path, I divide it up, or I consider this the threefold training, the training in wisdom, which is right view, which includes the Noble Eightfold Path, and part of the Noble Eightfold Path is, I mean, part of the um, Four Noble Truths is the Eightfold Noble Path. And so I look at all those eight path factors as being um, not only of equal value, but they, they're non-linear. In other words, they feed off of each other. They're, they're not in a sequential one, you right view, then right thoughts, then right speech, right action, right livelihood. So I like to put it in the wisdom pair is the right view, which I said is the Noble Eightfold Path, which includes um, the Noble Eightfold Path, but it includes uh, uh, Four Noble Truths and, and the Law of Karma. And then there's right thoughts, which are thoughts of, you know, renunciation, you know, loving kindness and non-delusion or wisdom. And then there's the morality piece, which I think is missing a lot of the time, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then there's the, which is sometimes called concentration or samadhi. I like to use the word mental discipline or mental development, which is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And so I think a lot of people, when they talk about mindfulness, they're talking about mindfulness, and they may not even be distinguishing right effort from concentration. And so the interesting thing about this, this breaking up the eight into the three parts is that you need initial right view to practice morality, and morality makes it possible to develop the mental discipline. And I just to say this when I work with my clients, especially the ones in, in prison or you know, just um, you know, in gangs or whatever, I say, well, you sit down and meditate. It's helpful if you don't rob banks or do things so that every time you hear a fire engine or a, in, a siren, you think it's the police coming to get you. So there's something, now that's, that's gross, but then there's other little things when we use wrong speech or wrong action or wrong livelihood. It affects our energy. It affects our ability to be present for life because Narayan talked about those hindrances that, that have a way of getting in the way so that all of these path factors have to be working together if you're going to have a powerful mindfulness. So mindfulness is not enough. It's, it's, it may be the heart of Buddhist meditation, but uh, mindfulness alone is not enough. You need the other path factors. And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit. And of course, on this retreat, we're doing the Satipatthana Sutta because that's where we, the four foundations of mindfulness, that's where we develop mindfulness. In the last couple of days, we've been working on the body, and at some point, we'll get the feelings and mind states and mind objects. So that's kind of uh, how I look at it, is the mindfulness gets supported by these other path factors. And one of the ways I look at it, and I start thinking about, well, the power of mindfulness, where do we get the power? Where's the power come from? The power comes from the five spiritual powers, and I, I like to look at them like obviously there's there's trust or faith, and then there's there's um, effort and mindfulness, concentration and wisdom. And the thing that mindfulness does, one of the things that mindfulness does, is that it helps us to cultivate and balance those five powers. So the interesting thing is that 
when you look at mindfulness and you read the sutta, it talks about diligence and clearly knowing and um, beyond likes, uh, desires, and discontents. So that's a fancy way of saying concentration, right effort, and wisdom. But the thing that I, I think is really important that I bring into this process is the trust, faith, conviction. And the interesting thing about that is when I first came to this practice, um, I was re- reminded how important trust is because without the trust, we won't make the effort. And if we don't make the effort, we don't develop mindfulness. And if we don't develop mindfulness, we don't have concentration. And if we don't have all those other factors, wisdom will not arise. And so when I look at the whole teachings of the Buddha and I'm looking at those three trainings, obviously the wisdom training is where we, we try to eradicate the latent tendencies. So as Narayan talked about calm, all it does is put the hindrances in abeyance. In other words, they're there, but they're not operating. But then the reason we have the precepts and morality is because when these hindrances have manifested, we have to have a way of being where we're not killing, we're not stealing, we're not lying, we're not taking intoxicants, and we're not um, engaged in um, any misconduct, sexual or otherwise. And so each one of these divisions helps with with dealing with the defilements or the hindrances. And so there's one is prevention with the, the mental discipline with the right right effort, right right mindfulness and right concentration. But then there's a wisdom piece where we really get to eradicate really and this is what Narayan talked about, understanding and really understanding how things arise and how to make them how to abandon them. And so that's part of the wisdom piece, but it, it goes even deeper than that when we talk about the three poisons, when we talk about the fact that everything is impermanent and that because everything is impermanent, you know, we suffer. And it's suffering or dukkha. And the fact is we, we live, and I know this from my own experience, we live under this illusion of separateness. I don't necessarily like to use the word non-self. I prefer using the illusion of separateness. And so a lot of this investigation is to really see things as they are and to see how we are causing suffering. And so mindfulness is a really good uh, way to go when it comes to that because you'll notice if you look at the, uh, the five spiritual powers or even the Eightfold Noble Path, you see effort, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration together. And the five powers is the same thing. And so there's something about that that relationship and that mental discipline that's necessary to help the other path factors. So mindfulness helps to develop trust or conviction or to reflect on it. And one of the things that I'll share my personal experience, when I was writing this book, I felt like I never had faith. There was, there was no faith to be had. I was really out of my comfort zone. And it was almost like, well, where did that faith go? I know I used to have it. Where, where did it go? And then I realized, George, that's because you're way out of your comfort zone. It's like a bank account. You, you drew some checks on that, man. You got to make a deposit. <laughs> and so I started reflecting on, you know, and this is why we reflect on the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and we have good friends and wise people and teachings that help us. And so I started going to, okay, the idea is, do I, see the, do I see the glass, the proverbial glass is half empty or half full? And both are right, but if I see it as half full, then there's a different attitude that I have towards life and towards what happens to me. But if I see it as half empty, then that's coming from scarcity and I'm probably going to be in the survival mode. And I know from my experience and from the science, you can't be in the survival mode and growth mode at the same time. So you have to have some... Some, something to believe in, some faith, some trust, some conviction of what is so. And so Einstein said that the most important question you can ever ask is if the world is a friendly place. And he said, Einstein went on to explain the meaning behind his quote, and here's what he said. For if we decide that the universe is an unfriendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to achieve safety and power by creating bigger walls to keep out the unfriendliness and bigger weapons 
to destroy all that which is unfriendly. And I believe that we are getting to a place where technology is powerful enough that we may either completely isolate or destroy ourselves as well in, the pro in this process. It goes on to say, but if we decide that the universe is neither friendly nor unfriendly, and that God is essentially playing dice with the universe, then we are simply victims to the random toss of the dice and our lives have no real purpose or meaning. But here's the key, but if we decide that the universe is a friendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to create tools and models for understanding that universe, because power and safety will come through understanding its workings and its motives. Ergo, that's what we're doing here. This is what I've realized is that this practice is, is the way to peace, or as Buddha talked about, uh, Satipatthana Sutta being um, the path of purification. Just, you know, purity and, and getting to things or relating to things as they are. So this trust thing is really helpful, at least enough trust to launch or to have a willing suspension of disbelief. And so the trust... Developing the trust is important, but it has to be balanced with wisdom or clearly knowing. So you might know some people who are really intellectual, really smart, but they're cynical. Of course, I'm pretty sure we, could, we, we become cynical sometimes. So when it's too much wisdom, then it has to be balanced with more faith. And so if there's too much faith and no wisdom or discernment, then you have like blind faith, and that doesn't work either. So, so you can see where those pair have to be in balance, and it has everything to do with our ability to make an effort, our ability to be mindful. So now we come to effort, and in, in the sittings, at the end of the sittings, I've been kind of hopping on, okay, check out your effort level. And so where does this come from? Well, a little self-disclosure, when I came here, um, I came with that same intensity energy that I used to chase getting high with doing this practice. So I had a lot of wrong effort, a lot of greed. I wanted to be enlightened yesterday. And so I pushed through things and there was, you know, self-compassion. What was that? It was more like, okay, I got to do this and you got to sit here and, you know, I don't care if your leg falls off, you got to sit there. Uh, and that effort, I struggled a lot. And it took me years, I don't know how many years, I don't know if it's been 20 years or whatever, but one day it dawned on me when I was doing my wise reflection, it's like, dude, you're making this way too complicated. <laughs> this is really simple practice, man. It's like, you know, so how about effort with, with um, poise or steadiness of mind? Hmm, that's a good idea. You know, and, and understanding beyond... Uh, Likes and dislikes, just developing a little calm, a little concentration, and or what we would call poise in sports. Working with athletes is poise. And this Hall of Fame coach, John Wooden, who coached UCLA, his definition of poise is just being yourself. So being poised means that I have to understand at least how I am or how my mind-body is relating in this this. Uh, Person, personality that I call I, me, and mine, and then realizing that, that effort, and, and then when I talk about diligence, that's what they talk about in this, uh, in this relationship with mindfulness, it's, it's a continuous application of balanced energy. So it's, it's like, so my old effort was wrong effort, and I was more like the tortoise, I mean the hare. I'd get there fast, but then I'd be tired and go to sleep. And then this is more like the tortoise, where it's steady. And there's, there's a, a composer, his name was Hokey Carmichael. He wrote a uh, song, a line in the song was, slow motion gets you there faster. That's kind of how I started learning, realizing that, you know, do, you know, just easy does it. Keep it simple and just full, you know, not full speed ahead, but just keep going, a balance, not too much, not too little. So it's like tuning a guitar. If it's too tight, it's not good. If it's not tight enough, it's not good. It's got to be just right. It's got to be balanced. And so, and you can see as everything changes, we always got to look at, well, how is our effort? And the effort is not just the application of, of energy, but then those, those hindrances can come in and they can zap us of energy. You know, doubt, 
Okay, doubt will stop us in our tracks. Our nervous system is programmed. When it sees a threat, it goes from fight or flight, and part of the flight is freeze. And sit there, I don't know what's going on, and it's, we get paralyzed. And so we have to understand that, that we need to understand how to deal with these mind states so that we, we have positive mind states. So when there's anger, then we have a way, and this is where the mindfulness and right effort comes in, is how to abandon anger skillfully. That's one part of it, but another part of it is how to prevent it from arising in the first place. And then it's the same with the positive things like mindfulness or right effort or, or trust. How do we, how do we uh, cultivate it, bring it into existence, and how do we maintain it or perfect it or get it to the point where we can do that? So effort is not just application of energy, but it's also understanding the mind states have everything to do with our willingness to be present and our willingness to have that, that um, positive energy uh, that helps us through this. And so the mindfulness is what cultivates all of these things, and yet these things help the mindfulness. So when we talk about mindfulness, it's always interesting because I've been studying this for years, and I, don't, I still sometimes feel like I still don't get it. I experience it, but there's, it's hard to talk about. It's, it's kind of it's like there's what they call declarative learning, and then there's non-declarative learning or implicit learning. And I think mindfulness is and a lot of this practice is like that. You really can't can declare it sometimes, but you can experience it. I'll give you an example. You, everybody knows how to ride a bike. You ride a bike once and you always know. How do you describe that? You can't. That's what I mean by non-declarative learning. So a lot of times we're practicing. I've been practicing for years and things have been happening but because I couldn't declare it. I'm saying uh, it's, it's, I'm going nowhere fast. But in actuality, that's where the trust comes in and, and continuing to, to, to move ahead and continue to inch forward and continue to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha and to be associated with good friends or teachers and teachings and actually learning the teachings and applying them. And so what does mindfulness look like? The stability of awareness on an object, not forgetting. Apply the directed thought or attention, keeping the object in mind. So part of it is not forgetting what we're doing and also not forgetting the present moment. So that, that is steadiness of mind or another way of saying concentration. Another aspect of, of uh, mindfulness is mirror mind or presence of mind, allowing things to speak for themselves without interruption, interfering, non-judging by word, deed, or, or thought being face-to-face -face with whatever arises, presence of mind in the immediacy of experience. So there's a guy here that talks about wonder, and I think it, it, it speaks to this. He said, uh, this guy's name is uh, Eugene Fink, and he says, in the face of the world, what does it mean, wonder? It implies an approach that can shatter the taken-for-grantedness of everyday reality. Wonder is the unwilled willingness to meet what is utterly strange and what is most familiar. It is the willingness to step back and let things speak to us, a passive receptivity to let things of the world present themselves in their own terms. And so when I think of this and when I think of this idea of of letting things speak to us and we think about the perceptual process and, and it's interesting because I went back to a talk I gave back in 1993 or something and I was talking about this. So the perceptual process is, is interesting and so in, in the book I talk about stimulus and response. So one of the things mindfulness does, it creates space or the, not just mindfulness but insight meditation creates space between stimulus and response. And, um, and in a book, and then this morning I talked about the eye of the hurricane. So we can, there's a stillness, there's a silence inside that we can observe from. And it's when we're able to observe from that space that it makes it easy for us to, not easier, but easier to, to tolerate discomfort. And so, so when you think about the perceptual process, and maybe I'll talk about it. Um, so one way of looking at mindfulness is... Where I grew up in Dorchester and Roxbury, 
uh, you would take a, a train, uh, you take a bus to the to one station, and then you have to catch another bus, and so, or you would take a train to the to the station where the bus was, and then you have to run off the train and come downstairs, and then the bus will be there, and you run. In those days, they didn't have the sign on the front of the bus. I mean, the side of the bus. They had it on the front of the bus, so you run and you look, and you see B, and then you see Ah. Okay, good. You get on the bus. Then you end up in Bridgewater, and you want to go to Brockton. So it's just a matter of one letter. Just a matter of creating enough space to see, oh, B-R, that, mm, okay, or B-O, okay, that, that tells you something. Sometimes we have to elongate it longer and longer, and that's repetition. Sometimes we do things over and over, and each time we pick up a little something else, but it's not just mindfulness. It's, there has to be enough wisdom, at least enough information about, well, what are we trying to do, and how do we know, you know, uh, we got to know what how to spell Brockton or, or Bridgewater, and we got to know what the letter B or the R looks like. So, wisdom and mindfulness are always working together, even though we talk about mindfulness. So, ordinarily, there's no space between stimulus and response because the receptive phase of perception is very short. And so, what happens is we get datum, and then there's Self-reference, there's associative thinking, there's abstract thinking, and more details gets projected onto the datum, or we interpret what it means instead of letting it speak to us. And so the power of mindfulness elongates this by creating space between stimulus and response and by looking and saying, well, what is this, or just pausing enough to get the next letter. And when you have a hindrance like doubt or fear or anxiety, it's really hard to do that. And so that's where cultivating right effort and understanding with mindfulness, we can see, okay, there's, there's anger in the mind, there's frustration, or we have aversion, or there's um, anxiety or doubt, that now we can say, okay, so whatever we're seeing, if I got on the hate glasses, y'all in trouble. <laughs> if I got on the love glasses, that's something else, but we don't even know we have on glasses, so those mind states color it, and so that's why it's really important that we use mindfulness or this understand this perceptual process so that we understand that mirror mind is just being able to see what's so without reference to, to self or interfering or non-judging because when we see things we have cognitive dissonance where oh it's hard to look at our stuff but we look at it and say, oh no I don't want to look at that but this is about inviting us to be there and so you need faith you need trust because what am I asking or what is being required is to be present for each unknown unfolding moment as it arises. That's what we're asking. Because we think we know, but we really don't. And so this practice gives us, if we're in the eye of the hurricane, or we have this way of being, and we have these concepts and these ideas about how to be present, what to look for, the wisdom component, it really helps us to really start to discern what's actually going on so we can actually see what we think is going to happen versus what actually happens and then having the space to accept it and to learn because to me it's a lot of it is just like with awareness and wisdom or mindfulness and wisdom it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle you know you do the puzzle you you look at the pieces and you get pieces and you put some away. Then you say, oh, I remember that piece. And you go get the piece and you put it together and you keep stitching things together. You keep putting things together and then it makes sense. Then you get a picture of what it is and then you, you start on the next one. So this is how we learn by trial and error. And this is how we pursue excellence and wisdom by being still and knowing, by being being willing to see things as they are, and based on that, we can make wise decisions in that space between stimulus and response. And uh, I'm not really making that up. That's what uh, that's what Viktor Frankl said. He said, between stimulus and response, there is a space, and that space is our power to choose our response. And our response lies our growth and our freedom. And and Joseph Campbell says something similar when he talks about the athlete who is in championship form has a quiet place in himself. And it's out of that that his actions come. If he's all in the action field, he's not performing properly. There's a center out of which you act and dance as well. This is true. 
and dance as well. There's a center that has to be known and held. It's quite physically recognized by the person. But unless this center has been found, you're torn apart, tension comes. We talk about the hindrance when we come, and I talk to my, my, my athletes all the time. If you're focused on how you're doing, you're not focused on what you're doing. And so there has to be this ability to know, okay, this this anxiety or this fear in the mind and how do we relate to it in a way where we know what we're going to see is going to be a problem. So part, one part of this process is to, to know how to abandon it. But another part of the process is to see how it manifests so we can understand it. So we give meditation instructions. Okay, so, you know, you're sitting and then this whether it's an emotion or a thought, it keeps being really strong. And we keep saying, okay, just let it go and just be with your breath or the body. But at some point, sometimes what has to happen is that we have to take the mindfulness and the wisdom and, and investigate what is this. And even more importantly, to see how it arises and passes away. See that it comes through one of the sense doors. And then there's, like I talked about, the perception. There's the contact there's the object in the sense door. Then if it's, a, if it's a sound, it's the ear, the sound, and consciousness has to be there. There's contact, then there's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And those three things determine whether we approach, avoid, or space out. And then there's labeling of what it is, and then there's this thinking about what it is. And, of course, the Buddha calls that papancha, or proliferation of thoughts, because we don't just see it. We write a short story about it because we have an interpretation about it. And so that this is happening with every object that comes into our awareness. There's this thing that's happening very quickly. And so to the degree that we can see, okay, and the Buddha gave the sermon when he said, when in the seen only what is seen, in the heard only what is heard, there's no interpretation. You know, so something happens. That's all, something happens. Okay, there's a sound. Okay, it comes through. We're at CIMC, the fire engine goes down the street, and you're doing your meditation, and that sound comes in. And you either make it noise, or it's just a sound that just floats through. And we say, oh, it shouldn't be there. It's messing with my meditation. What are they thinking about? Not even thinking about somebody's house could be burning down. <laughs> Not even thinking, no shame. Just like it shouldn't be there. And so we can see that we do this with all the sense data. All the objects that come into our awareness, we, if we're not mindful, if we don't catch it and notice, oh, we're just seeing, we're just hearing, and then we're interpreting and we're projecting our self-reference and, you know, this is what happened before. We're not even present to what is as it is. And so this whole idea of this practice, especially with the mindfulness, is just to see what's so in the be with what is as it is and that we can learn from that and we can create space between stimulus and response, which means we have the power to transform the change in that, um, in that process. So I talked about mirror mind, and then the other thing is mindfulness is, means to remember. And what do we remember? We remember what is skillful, what is unskillful. And that's, that's what we can do. Like, okay, we can remember, oh, that worked. Okay, why don't I do that? And it's all about skillful, unskillful, uh, if it's beneficial or unbeneficial. And, of course, the Buddha taught his son, Rahula, wise reflection around that. He said, if, if you're going to do something that's harmful to you or harmful to others or harmful to both, you're not to do it. But if it's beneficial to you and, and not beneficial to others, you shouldn't do it. But if it's beneficial to you and beneficial to others, then it should be done. So he's talking about reflecting before, during, and after an activity of word, thought, or deed. And so that's, that's the level we can get to on, on some level. That's why we have right thoughts, thoughts of renunciation or loving kindness or compassion, that those thoughts can really help us do things that are skillful. And so what we think, we become. There's a man by the name of uh, Brian Tracy. He, said, he says, you are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. 
I'll say it again. You are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. So those thoughts, if we're not paying attention and taking responsibility for how we're seeing things, how we're, how we're um, thinking about things, then, you know, we're not in control. And so this practice is about looking at all of that in a way that's skillful, compassionate, with loving kindness. And, and so understanding that stability of mind is helpful, presence of mind, letting things speak for themselves and just seeing what is so, and then remembering what is skillful and what is unskillful, and then also paying attention to the essentials, you know, like what are we doing and why, and, and what information do we have in terms of knowing what we're doing, because if we don't have a clue what we're doing, then we're going to be mindless or, like I like to say to people I work with, if you don't know who you are, you could end up being anybody. And if you don't know where you're going, you could end up going anywhere. So there is this thing, okay, what am I doing, which we call satisampajana or clear comprehension. I'll talk about that some other time, but I just wanted to, um, to say that appropriate attention, what are we paying attention to? And a lot of times, it's important to pay attention to our attitude, our mind, what thoughts are in our mind, what kind, what kind of mind state are we operating from? Do we have the hate glasses on, or do we have the love glasses, or do we have the wisdom glasses? And so there won't be any wisdom if the, if the mind has greed in it. There won't be any wisdom if the mind has uh, aversion. There won't be any wisdom if the mind is deluded and is, is confused. So that, that this whole process of being mindful, supported by uh, stability of mind, supported by diligence or right effort, and clearly knowing what we're doing and what we're getting. And sometimes even if we don't know what we're doing, can we see and say, okay, what is this? And, and what do I make of it? And so there's this investigative quality, now I'm getting into the factors of enlightenment, but, but that's basically, um, I don't know if I want to say more about mindfulness and the spiritual powers, but I'll, I'll say, what, I'll, here's a quote from Ajahn Chah. He said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. And so just talking a little bit about recapping qualities of mindfulness of what it looks like. Stability of mind, not forgetting the present, not forgetting what we're doing. Mirror mind just allowing things to speak for themselves, seeing what is so, being face-to-face with whatever arises in the immediacy of experience, remembering what is skillful, what is beneficial, remembering the teachings of the Buddha. Because this is the interesting thing about when we get into investigation of Dharma is like, okay, the Buddha is not saying, do this, and trust me, he's saying, see for yourself. That's a big part of invest, you know, investigation of Dhammas is, okay, these are the principles that this is what we're saying is so. Check it out and see if you can have an experience of it. Because wisdom, one way of looking at wisdom is information, um, intellect, and direct experience or, or intuition. Having a direct experience of, of what we're talking about. So when we have a direct experience of seeing how mindfulness can free us from, from our addictions, like I did, and realizing that my life depended on this, that I had to be really clear about what I was thinking, what my intentions were. And I had to come to the realization that no matter what, no drinking and drugs. Abstinence. And even now, and after 31 years, uh, it's on the download, but it's there. And if I forget that, then I end up doing, doing what I was doing. But the interesting thing is, is that at the level of consciousness that I'm at, that's not even a choice. And that's the other thing this practice does. It, gives, it keeps us deeper, deeper levels of consciousness where, we're, where it's automatic that we're, we're, 
we're doing what's skillful. We're being mindful even when we don't want to be mindful because it's been programmed that way. And we start to see, okay, we know better. No, don't go there. It's almost like you have a significant other. It's almost like you know they're going to push the button. And we keep acting like, well, they shouldn't push the button. Well, good luck with that one. Because they're going to push the button. And the only reason why it's the button is because we keep reacting to it like it shouldn't be. Instead of realizing, okay, they're going to do that. I work with this guy. He used to say things that piss me off all the time. And then one day I realized, oh, he was getting in charge out of pushing a button to see George jump. And then I decided, okay, I'm not going to jump anymore. Then he, then he stopped messing with me because he was getting no charge out of it. So, so let me see. I don't want to talk too much more because we're kind of running out of time. But this whole idea of mindfulness being supported by, by right effort, right concentration, and being supported by wisdom and faith, understanding that faith is important or trust to make the effort. And making the effort is important to being mindful and mindful is important to concentration and concentration is important to wisdom and that they all interact. And that without mindfulness, we don't develop wisdom. Without mindfulness, we don't have right effort. Without mindfulness, we may not be aware of faith or a way of looking at things that engenders confidence or self-efficacy in us. So I think there's just one little thing I'll talk about. Because I think for me, being self-referential again, is that when I first came here, it was because I had what I call the AOF method of motivation. And I have to apologize for wrong speech, but it's called ass on fire. <laughs> it was a gift of desperation. So after I'd been here for a while, you don't have the gift of desperation. So I had to come up with some other motivation. And my motivation is um, the love of learning, the love of discovery, and, the, and doing it for all beings, alleviating suffering having a passion for life and wanting to make a difference. And so this, this guy, his name was um, David Hawkins. He passed away, and he was asked um, about the spiritual life. He says, how does the inner path differ from traditional religious observance? He said, the emphasis, the emphasis is on the, internal, the inner experience the inner experiential subjective realization, internal va validation of spiritual truth. In other words, he's talking about insight or intuition. And he says, what are the characteristics devotees tend to be, uh, what are the characteristics for being on the inner path? And he said, devotees tend to be introspective, thoughtful, reflective, curious, responsible, and attentive. There is usually an aversion to violence, cruelty, non-integrity, and the fanfare and drama of glamour and vulgarity. There are the attraction to learning for its own sake and the pleasure of discovery of basic premises. And so the inner path, and he says, what's the demand of daily life? And this is what we're up to. The inner path is a way of continuously being with oneself and life in the world. Whereas religious observances tend to become compartmentalized Spiritual devotion is a continuous inner lifestyle that incorporates constant watchful awareness. External, external occurrences are transitory, whereas inner qualities of consciousness are more permanent. Inner work is a constant learning process whereby there are pleasure and satisfaction and discovery and the unfolding of insight. This process is self-rewarding and paradoxically, this results in greater benefit and enjoyment of formal religious participation or practices as well. The reflections of truth are everywhere to be seen and recognized in multitudinous, multitudinous expressions. By internal observation, there develops an inner wisdom that facilitates compassion and spiritual comprehension rather than an art to discipline. With inner awareness, religious guilt and preoccupation with sin diminishes and, and instead one chooses positive options rather than being controlled by negative programs resulting in shame, fear, and guilt. 
Fulfillment of potential is rewarding and gratifying, which in turn progressively reinforces motivation. motivation. Self-honesty brings greater inner freedom as well as adaptational expertise and flexibility. It is not necessary to withdraw from the world, but instead to recontextualize it we contextualize it. Spiritual evolution results in greater capability due to the advancement of consciousness that ensues. It is a matter of motivation. And so I'll just kind of leave it at that. But that's a vision that I have, and that's the game I'm up to. People ask me, what am I doing? I'm pursuing excellence and wisdom with grace and ease. <laughs> Which is way different than me being a spiritual warrior running through brick walls. Don't have to do that. This practice gives us the opportunity to be still and know, but also to understand that we all have, you know, and this is my philosophy, and I'm in with this. Um, when they asked Michelangelo, how did he create these masterpieces out of these blocks of, of marble? And he said, all I do is chip away to get to the masterpiece that's already there. We call that masterpiece Buddha nature in this tradition, that we all have it, and that. One way of looking at our work is we're chipping away to get to that masterpiece. Thank you. So can we sit for a few? May we share our good merits with all beings seen and unseen, born and yet to be born. So we have a walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.